Today we're going to be in Luke 18, starting with verse 1. See, the last time it was a really exciting picture of the end times events that we saw and the expounding of the day of the Lord into events starting really with the rapture and culminating into the second coming. Realize this, that anything spoken of uh, compared to those exciting subjects is really anticlimactic. But how are the disciples, and for that matter, how are we supposed to live while the master's away? Which is the title of today's sermon, sermon, while the master's away. How should we then live? Is a question so important that it became the title of Francis Schaeffer's book, How Should We Then Live? And what he does is he makes the, uh, the connection between the, us going away from our fellowship with God, going away from prayer and God's word, and the cultural decline into a decadent morass. It's a good book. But today we're going to start with the parable of the woman and the unjust judge, starting in verse 1. It says, Then he spoke a parable to them that men all, always ought to pray and not lose heart. Why does he go into the parable about prayer and not losing heart? Well, he just got done blowing their minds about end-time events, but between his ascension and his return is going to be a long absence. So far, it's been about 2,000 years. And this is that metaphoric period uh, spoken of about the bridegroom being taken away in Matthew's Gospel and the days of the dry wood spoken of in Luke's Gospel. The disciples are going to get pushed out of the nest, so to speak. They're going to need to rely on fellowship with God via prayer to grow the church. They're going to need to keep the lines of communication open between them and God, even though the Lord is not physically with them anymore. What about us? Do you drop them a line every day? Or just when you're in a jam? That used to be me. My prayers would start off with, Oh God, I'm really in trouble now. But, you know, God prefers the former. I said last service that the kingdom of God is attainable to all. He's already reached out to you and me by sending his son 2,000 years ago to die on the cross for our sins. The way I look at it is, it's your move now. What are you going to do about it? He's not going to force you to love him, and he's not going to force you to maintain a relationship with him. He also says here, don't lose heart. Galatians 6.9 tells us that... Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Human nature, though, is to lose heart if something doesn't happen quick enough. We all know that. But Jesus is saying here, hang in there and trust me. Keep praying. Be persistent. Don't quit. And maybe that's a message today that some of you need to hear. Be persistent. Trust him. Hang in there and don't quit. Paul tells the Corinthians to run the race to win. He says to Timothy that he's fought the good fight of faith. He tells Timothy to lay hold of eternal life. A picture of persistence. Verse 2. She was saying, There was a certain man or a certain city and a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Avenge me of my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Widows, we've spoken about them before. In that society, they had no status. That's why God continually charges society to take care of them. We see that all throughout the law and the prophets. This judge, well, he's a godless judge, and he may even be corrupt. 
And that's not a stretch, because if your background and your foundation isn't the Lord, then what do you really have? Your ideas and your truths are relative, as we see today, the age of relativism. So he may have been corrupt. He's certainly not going to get a bribe from this poor widow, but he's tired of her bothering him, so he acts. Verse 6, Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? Jesus' method of teaching here is from the worst situation to the best. He goes from the godless judge grudgingly giving justice to a God, a just God, a righteous God, bountifully blessing his children. Jesus is saying if an ungodly judge can be moved by persistence, how much more a just God because of love? God wants to bless us. I want to turn to Psalm 22, starting with verse 3, 3 through 5. It says this, speaking to God, But you are holy, who inhabit the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you, and were delivered. They trusted in you, and were not ashamed. God wants to bless us, and he inhabits the praises of his people. I believe he also inhabits the prayers of his people. Do you want to get God to feel all warm and fuzzy inside? Praise him. Somehow he's able to inhabit those praises. And trust him. It's very repetitive in Psalm 22, but I think the point, the psalmist is very clear. That people can trust him, he trusts him. And it's a common thing to trust the Lord. And in verse 8, he says, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? The word speedily is a, a Greek phrase. It's en takos, which means quickly or shortly. From the root, the common root takus, we get the word taka or tachy. Tachycardia meaning fast heart rate. So you can see all the roots are very similar. But in Strong's Concordance, this is an unusual phrase. And I looked up the word quickly in other portions of Scripture, and it's not worded like this. Because N, the first part of it, is a preposition which means within. And it's usually used immediately or constructively, normally not with motion verbs. Now, why do I tell you all this? Because it literally means within speedily, which doesn't seem to make sense. But when you really understand it, what it means is that God works quickly within a certain time frame, or you can bet on it. How many people feel that your prayers are answered like that? Like that, You pray to God, and all of a sudden, within a day, he's got the answer right there. Let's be honest. Many of us, not me often, I don't know about you, but so how do we reconcile our feelings with what God's word says? Well, it's very simple. Number one, feelings can't be trusted. Our feelings change. Sometimes we, somebody, we like somebody, and then a few months later we don't like them, and then a few months later we like them again. So our feelings flip-flop, right? Number two, sometimes God did give you an answer, and the answer is no. How many people like to hear no? I don't like to hear no if I really want something. And sometimes we, we, we know that that's the answer, but we're ignoring it. You know, we're trying to sidestep it. But God says, no, that's not good for you. I love you too much to give you that. No. Another thing is God does work speedily, although we don't often feel the results of it. If you look at Daniel chapter 10, uh, Daniel prays to God, and God dispatches an angel to give him the answer. 
But when the angel comes to Daniel, he says, I've been withstood 21 days from a, from a demonic being that was tying me up. So that answer was given, but it just took a delay to get to Daniel. It's interesting. It's about end times events. There are things going on in the spiritual realm that we're not aware of. Spiritual battles, preparation of hearts. God, I believe firmly that God will not trample over our free will. Our, our wills are very strong. If you've ever had a, a child who has a strong will and you're the parents, you battle with that kid. And you say, how do, I, how do I get this kid to do what I want him to do? He's got such a strong will, right? Well, we can be the same way. And God, when he has to prepare our hearts, sometimes he uses circumstances to soften us up a little bit, to do the right thing, right, to prepare our hearts. And that takes a while. God immediately works on what you're saying, but the results maybe aren't felt that quickly. Sometimes deaths. Look at King Josiah. Josiah had a wicked father and a wicked grandfather. And it took for those two men to die before Josiah could come into power in Israel and make incredible changes in the land of Israel, spiritual revival, right? Wars, etc. So everything that God changes has a domino effect on the universe. And when he... Just imagine, I mean, everything that's changed, if, if you knew somebody who, if you could go back in time and, and they didn't exist, how would life change? It would have ripple effects, maybe across the country, depending on who the person is. So God is very careful how he tweaks things in the universe. Uh, you know, I thought about yesterday. It wasn't a good day yesterday. One of the things that happened was my wife took my son to the movie theater and she called me up and said, the truck's not starting. I just spent $600 on it. Why isn't it starting? But I was really annoyed. And the funny thing is I already had my message prepared. And I'm starting it and trying to start it and start it. I think it's the fuel pump. And I'm like, oh, now it's got to be towed, the whole deal. So I said to myself, don't get mad. You just did a service on this. But it is a possibility that the Lord protected, I don't know, maybe my wife. And it's just speculation from going out on the road and something happening to her. I don't know. Which could have had ripple effects that God wasn't prepared for yet. So no matter what you think may be wrong, you know, just trust God. Trust God that your life is in his hands. So the, the results are not often felt in the temporal realm right away because it's a matter of perspective. His perspective versus your perspective. And of course, he always has the better perspective. We often erroneously associate God with moving too slow or sometimes not at all. And also for it's a question of his wisdom. His ways are higher than our ways. We think sometimes that God's not moving fast enough, but God knows that his timing is right on time. Often we think he's too, take, taking too long, but he's making preparations. He might be testing our resolve. He might be helping us to build faith. He might be helping us to build spiritual roots that go down deep so we're not moved in the face of the storms. Another thing that happened to us yesterday, at 6.30 in the morning, we were woken up by a loud bang. It almost sounded like somebody crashed into the house. So we get up and we found out that a 70-foot tree decided to fall over and, and hit our house yesterday. So it was the, the sight of the neighborhood. Everybody had to slow down and look, whoa, you know. But I, I think about that tree and I'm like, was it lightning? I don't remember a lightning storm. So I actually walked out over to the tree and I'm looking at it. It's a big tree, big, big girth, right? And it's, it's over. And I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, well, the roots go down deep. Why is this tree tipped over like this? And the, the closer I get to it, I realize it's... It's a big root ball, but they're shallow roots, and they just ripped right out of the ground because a strong wind came and knocked it over. And you know what I realized was that tree, hopefully it doesn't happen again, but it might, that tree is with other trees in an area of our property that's always flooded with water. 
What am I trying to tell you? I'm trying to tell you that that tree, whenever it needs water, doesn't have to go very far. It doesn't have to put its roots down deep. That water is always there for that tree. So that tree grew 70 feet with a very shallow roots. And all it took was some storms to blow on that tree. It had nothing to hold it in, and it went over and pulled those shallow roots right out of the ground. And you know what's cool? I'll use anything in a sermon, even a tree hitting my house. <laughs> But the cool thing is that, you know, we could look at ourselves like that. We want to be that tree in that, in that water. We want to know that every time we want something to drink, that that water is there for us. That's what we want in our flesh. But God is saying, I love you too much. I'm going to allow the dry times in your life so that your roots go down deep. So that when the storms of life blow against you, and as much as they push, you're not going to move. And that's what God wants for us. So, and another thing is sometimes we think God's moving too fast. He says, go. <laughs> and we say, whoa, where's the fire? What's the hurry? I'm not ready. <laughs> what do you mean go? Heather and I watched our, uh, a few weeks ago, we were with a couple, and we watched our wedding video for the first time in years. Uh, you know, and Pastor Lloyd did the ceremony. And the way the camera was faced, it was on the, the right side of me and Lloyd. And I'm watching myself and I'm laughing because I'm doing the anxiety dance. I'm moving around and you can see my shoulders go. I was so nervous to get married and I had my mouth open. I couldn't even breathe through my nose. I'm like, I mean, it was, I'm I'm just looking at that video. I'm going, no wonder I don't look at this thing that often. But if God told me that, hey, Joe, in a few years down the road, you're going to be a pastor. There's going to be all these people staring at you and you're going to talk in front of them. Man, I would have had stomach pains every night for years and I wouldn't have been able to sleep. But he didn't tell me that. He prepared me. I I couldn't speak in front of people. If I spoke in front of a few people, I would get so nervous, but it's gone now because God prepared me over time. Right. And that's what he'll do. Look, if he could do for me, he can do for any of you. But so I had my plans. You know, I, I said this before. My idea was, okay, I, I know some stuff about the Bible. I'm going to retire first. I'm going to get my pension. I'm going to wait for Josiah to grow up out of the house. And I'm going to do that pastor thing on the side when it's all over. Well, obviously, I'm here in front of you. God said, you're going now. And I said, wait a minute, you don't understand. You ever say that to God? Time out. You don't understand. Who are we talking to? He's like, keep talking, Jeremiah. I've heard this before. So back to the disciples, Jesus here uh, must prepare his followers to continue the good news and to carry on the work of the church, but they will be certain to fail unless they are in constant communication with God. One of the ways God moves on our behalf is not only with prayer, but persistent prayer, constant prayer. That's what he's looking for. It's a curious statement. Jesus says, when Jesus returns, will he really find faith on the earth? Now, that's a good question, and people can look at that line many different ways, but I decided to go on a search for sites about where they've done documentation on atheism in countries. And I actually found that uh, in 2005, Israel has between a, had a 25 to 37% atheist rate, which is a little startling or sad, given the fact that Israel is the only nation that I know and we could talk about the United States, but I think that it's really, biblically, it's Israel. is the only nation that I know that started, its base, its foundation, was God. The promises of God, the direction of God. And look at them now, 25 to 37%. And it gets worse. Europe is far worse. 
Europe is as high as 85% in some countries in Europe, with Russia and Asia not far behind. It's a, it's a sad state of affairs. And the USA is between 3 and 9%. But you wouldn't know it, because you see the assaults on the Christian faith commonly in the courts and what's going on, right? I'm going to uh, direct this a little bit, you know, because election season is coming up. What I won't do, I'm not going to make anybody feel uncomfortable, I will not tell you I don't think ever about who to endorse as a candidate, and I will not tell you which political party to vote for. I don't think it's right. But what I will tell you is, before you say, hey, I'm a Christian, I believe what God's word says, and you go into that booth, booth and you hit that lever, you better darn well know what that candidate stands for before you press that button. It's very important. Let me show you the slippery slope of how we say, oh, that's not a big deal, and let me, let me tell you where it ends. A few years back, the... Uh, the, uh, one of the librarian groups got together and fought the, um, the insistence of the government to put filters on uh, internet service in the library because of the children. And this group said, wait a minute, that's free speech. It doesn't matter if they're a, a, a minor, if they want to see pornography, let them see it. Free speech. Well, that's curious because when a kid is in school, he can't talk about Jesus, but he can watch pornography in a library. I don't know about that. The second thing is uh, the Psychiatric Association, one of the, their groups, had said if, a little while back that it's not such a bad thing for children to have sexual relations with adults. It's not that damaging. They were testing the waters. And there was a severe backlash because of that report. Let's keep, let's keep going with this. Um, parental notification. There's groups, there are people that are saying, we don't care how young the kid is, they shouldn't have to tell their parents if they're getting an abortion. Well, let's continue with that. Abortion. Abortion has turned into something that's a multi-billion dollar business. There was a man who, was, uh, who had several abortion clinics, and he came to Jesus. He came to be a Christian, and he told all. He told all the dirty secrets about the abortion clinics. Now, the interesting thing is what the abortion clinics are doing now, and they, they have gotten caught, and they're trying to do is harvest parts from the fetuses so that they can use it for science. This gets pretty sick. Now, let's keep going. I studied a little, now listen, you don't have to take my opinion for this, but I, you know, I'm here to do research so I could give you the research that I did, but do your own research. You know, I'm not telling you to believe what I say hook, line, and sinker. Look it up for yourself. The whole stem cell research thing, understand this. A stem cell, you can look it up in the encyclopedia, is a cell after the sperm and the egg unite. They call it a zygote. I call it a life. Uh, and what happens is you can get these stem cells. And with these cells, you can make any other cell in the body. So that's why they're called stem cells. They're parent cells in a sense. However, you can get the same stem cells from bone marrow, your own bone marrow. And it's a fact, because I know people who work in the medical industry, your body will accept more readily something from your own body than it will from a foreign body. So the stem cell debate is there's a lot of hype, there's a lot of emotion, but understand that you can use things from your own body and harvest them through science. We don't have to create life and then kill it, okay? Understand this, too, that with the whole stem cell debate, and this is, we just keep going further off the charts here. With the whole stem cell debate, the people who want to push, it's their agenda to push embryonic stem cells. What they want to do is they, they tag that along with human cloning. Well, we saw what happened to Dolly, the sheep. That was a disaster. Uh, and it just, it's becoming to the point where it's becoming bizarre. They have all these science. And be, remember, if man is unrestrained and man doesn't know God, this power in man's hand is, is devastating. 
We see what happens with nuclear weapons, right? So before you go into that booth and you press that button for your candidate, find out what that person stands for, because I don't think God's not going to hold you responsible for your decision. Now, I've said this before. In New Jersey, unfortunately, I believe there's very few political candidates from either side that represent people of faith. That's how bad it's got in New Jersey. But we still need to make our voices heard. And my solution is, if somebody's corrupt or somebody's bad, keep voting them out until somebody good gets in. Choose the lesser of the two evils. I don't know what else to tell you regarding that. So, anyway, the question is, will he find faith? After the Passover celebration was celebrated for thousands of years, the Jewish people, and they still do, they leave a plate, a table setting for Elijah, and they leave the door open for Elijah to come in. That's their tradition, right? And they've been doing that for a long time. My question is, are we that excited about our Lord's return? Does it show, do we have a place setting in our hearts for the Lord Jesus Christ? Or have we closed the door and said, you know what, Lord, I like living here. I've got my life all set up. If you come back, you come back, but I prefer you wait. Where is our hearts towards our Lord Jesus returning? Okay, so, and now what does persistent prayer mean and what does it not mean? Bringing it home a little bit. If you, if you accept uh, unreasonable expectations on yourself, you'll be doomed to fail from the beginning. If you have all these ideas of what you think God is going to make you do, then you, you, you're missing the point. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says to pray without ceasing. What does that mean? Does it mean to pray for hours? Well, my sister, it's like the, she, she has this book. It's a prayer journal. It has a leather binder on it. It's like this big book. And she opens it up and has all these names in it. And my sister could sit there for really, literally hours and pray. And, you know, that's, that's a good thing. And if that's you, great. Make sure I'm on your list, okay? <laughs> but me personally, in a half an hour, I run out of things to say. And I'm like, um, um, you know, so we're just different, right? But what I do is, I, and neither one of them is right or wrong. It's, it's up to, you know, you're an individual. With me, I talk to God in blocks of time all day long. If I'm cutting the lawn, if I'm on a bike ride, if I'm driving and people look at me and think I'm crazy, but that's okay. Another thing is if you have the Lord on your mind all day long, it's an inoculation against temptation. It's very hard to be sinning when you're always focused on the Lord, when you always have a heavenly perspective. It, come, it gets difficult to, to try to... to to fall into sin when you're, you know, you're, you've got the Lord, right? But understand too, it says persistent prayer, but not repetitive. Matthew six seven, Jesus says this. He says, "But when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Vain repetitions." Praying is communication with God. Praying is conversation with God. That's basically what it is. It's conversation. It's not chanting. It's not a mantra. It's not a repetitive prayer over and over again. Jesus said, like the heathen. Remember when um, Elijah fought the 400 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? (laughs) Elijah spoke to God like we're speaking now. But the prophets of Baal were cutting themselves and chanting and repeating and repeating. And what happened? Of course, they ended up losing their lives in the end. Uh, God accepted uh, Elijah's sacrifice and didn't do anything for the prophets of Baal. But, you know, and, and I've said this before. It's, it's not, when you come to God, you don't keep repeating the same things all over again. You speak to him. You tell him your heart's desire. The next thing here we have is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, which we covered before, but 
with regard to prayer, we need to look at this parable sort of in the sense of the context of our heart attitude when we come before the Lord. Verse 9, it says, And also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that were righteous and despised others. So we're given reasons why Jesus spoke this parable. He spoke it against self-reliance. He spoke it against self-justification. And of course, we've covered before against disparaging others. So if somebody feels that way, they're relying on themselves, they feel justified in themselves, and they look down at other people, why bother coming to God? Because what you're saying to God is, I got it covered, I don't really need you. So what's the sense in having that prayer, right? Do you know people like that? Have you been like that? Are you like that? Well, that's a dangerous place to be because as man, you know, if you've been around long enough, you think that you're going to live forever. You think that you've got it. You, you got the plans for your life. You think you got it all together. And then you realize that you're frail. Mankind is frail. The word in Hebrew is enosh, one of the words for mankind, and has a frailty as a connotation. It may have been derived from onash, which is in the Hebrew means weak or sickly. So even in the Hebrew language, there's a connotation when it comes to mankind that we're, we're frail, we're fragile. Verse 10, it says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In verse 11, Jesus clues us into the efficaciousness of the uh, Pharisee's prayer. It, obviously, it fell on deaf ears. Why? Self-righteousness, self-reliance. He's basically saying, I'm not like the other dirtbags in society. I'm a good guy. Look at me, Lord. I want to explain two words before I continue. One is justification. What is that? It means to declare righteous, right? In theology, it means to be, to be declared not guilty by God of your past sins when we come to the cross because it's already been paid for. He's already given us that gift 2,000 years ago. And when we come to the cross, we repent of our sins, believe on Jesus, trust him as our Lord and Savior. Boom, all those sins are wiped away. We're declared righteous. And the other word is sanctification, which is more of a process. It's a process, an ongoing process of purification. A process by which one, a person becomes more set apart over time. Set apart to God from sin and from the world. There's only one who can declare sin as righteous, and that's God. There's only one who can sanctify us continually, and that's God. So the Pharisee basically is announcing through this prayer that he's usurping God's role. He did it himself. The Pharisee also compared himself with the tax collector. Tax collector were crooks back then. They were thieves. They were a lot of bad things. They were extortioners. And they had the Roman arm of, of government, of, of the military, to back them up if people didn't pay the taxes. So they were, they were extortioners. You know, I could, I could do the same thing too. I could say, as a police officer... You know, I see some shoplifters come in. I'm glad I'm not a shoplifter. I could say, man, I see some guys beating their wives, domestic violence, and getting arrested. Pfft, I treat my wife good. I could say, I'm not a killer. I'm not a rapist. I'm one of the good guys. Look at me. Aren't I special? I'm a good person. But 
If I take what I'm thinking and I compare it to the Bible, what does the Bible say? The Bible says that if I leave 10 minutes early from my shift, I'm a thief because I just stole from the township. I'm supposed to be there at 1230 and I left at 1220. This is why we need the Lord. If I lust after one of the secretaries in the records bureau, I'm an adulterer. Heather, I have nothing to confess. This is just for illustration. (laughs) Just want to clear that one up. If I pull over a motorist and I, the guy gives me a hard time and I'm angry at this guy and I have anger in my heart towards this person, I become a murderer, the Bible says. Wow. It's a dangerous place to be when we start comparing ourselves with other people. Because then you don't think you need to come to God. Dangerous place to be. The proper perspective is we need to compare ourselves with Christ. That's our standard. That's where we need to be in our minds. Then we don't look so hot because he is the perfect standard. And we don't meet his perfection. Many think that they're going to go and before God with their good works. I cringe about that. I, I pray for those people. Because Isaiah 64, 6 says this to us. But we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind. It's an exercise in futility. And in verse 14, why was the tax collector justified, declared righteous by God rather than the religious leader? Because his heart was opposite. The tax collector humbled himself. See, God can only start with an empty vessel. We have to empty ourselves of ourselves, and that's when God can use us. That's the starting point, emptying ourselves of ourselves. Tax collector did that. The tax collector realized that he was unrighteous. He realized that only God could declare him righteous. The tax collector realized that he could not rely on himself anymore. He repented and allowed God to change his present condition. Romans 12.3 says, let us not think highly of ourselves than we ought to. You know, don't get a big head about yourself. There's a role reversal here. What our flesh thinks is right is automatically the reverse of God's truth. We're all taught in society how you need to stand alone, how you need to be a self-made man, how you need to, you know, it's all about yourself and and your, you know, exaltation. But in our flesh, that's what we can think. But the Bible says, and in our spirit, we know that if, if we're children of God, that that's wrong. We shouldn't be feeling like that. The lesson is, if you come to God as the Pharisee, don't waste your time because he's not going to hear those prayers. Psalm 66:18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not heal. And it could be that sin or iniquity of self-righteousness. So prayer, it's an extension of our hearts, uh, our heart's desire that comes out of our mouth in a sense. Verse 15, it says, then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked, he rebuked them. I'm sorry, they rebuked them. The disciples rebuked the people that were bringing the children to the Lord. So chronologically, it says then. I say that, that would indicate that this happened at some point after what we just read. So, and that's important. It's a good segue into another lesson. We spoke before of the widows having no status. The children had even less status. If a child, child had, you know, was nothing in the Roman world at the time. The child grew up and could be conscripted into the military. He was useful to fight. If a child, a female child, grew up and she could uh, be made to bear children, she was useful. But as a child, they weren't useful back then. And orphans were definitely at the bottom of the food chain. So why did disciples do this? Why do they do this? Hey, you know, the master's busy. Come on. Why, why are they doing this to the people? 
You would think that, or they thought, I don't know, did they think that Jesus was too important to deal with the scruffy little kids? You know, Jesus is too important. Go, go away. Um, didn't they just hear what Jesus said about humility? It's like they didn't get it. It is kind of fun to pick on the disciples because they made a lot of mistakes and we kind of have a little bit of a, I don't know, maybe a sanctimonious attitude towards that and say, look at the mistakes they made. But in reality, nothing's changed. We make the same mistakes that the disciples made. There's really no different there. Uh, Verse 16, it says, But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For, For of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means answer that. It's an interesting scripture, and I'm going to couple it with uh, Matthew 18:10, where Jesus says, it's one verse, he says, Take heed that you, not de- that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. It's like there's always a, a direct line of communication or a di- direct line of sight, if you will, between God and children. And also we know that... Um, we believe in the Calvary movement that if a child dies under the, age of, under the age of accountability, that the child goes right to be with the Lord, regardless of what type of child that is. They go right to be to heaven. And because that uh, death and their sin or whatever was covered under the cross 2,000 years ago. And the Jewish law has ages of adulthood to serve in certain capacities. Okay, I'm getting somewhere with this. Uh, you, you, you can tell from the Jewish law that there's ages of maturity and ages of accountability. And in the New Testament, no infants were baptized. You won't find an a, a infant baptism in the whole entire New Testament because that's reserved for mature adults who can understand what it means to choose God and identify with Christ. See, the whole concept of salvation is too abstruse for a small mind. It's something that they can't really lay hold of yet. I watched the different stages of development with my son, and he's seven now. And as he gets older, he understands salvation better. Uh, as, as five years old, he didn't really understand much of it. But as he gets older, it's becoming more you know, uh, cognitive to him, or in a sense, he's starting to comprehend it. Uh, so, again, what we believe is that a child uh, is you know, under that age. What is the age of accountability? That's up to debate. I think people mature at different stages, but I could say that if any of you are you know, 30 or 40 years old, you certainly know what it means, what sin means. You know that you have sinned, and you know that um, you know, Jesus is, is the way to salvation. So then people will ask me, and, and I've heard this question, what about mental retardation or something to that nature? Where, And again, I don't know great details about that, but if it's true that somebody who's actually 40 years old, and I've talked to people with that affliction, they, they act like children and they need to be taken care of. I believe that's covered under the blood too. And again, it's just my opinion, but I believe that the scriptures bear that out. So it just was something that I wanted to bring to your attention. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is, is a place where all children are welcome. I believe that God is a fair God and that um, you know, I believe that he'll do, always do the right thing. I don't think that at any point in time that uh, at the end, that we'll look and say, well, that was a bad call on your part, Lord. I mean, it's just not going to happen. So, right? Everything that he does is a good call. So prior to being saved, we really have to come to God with the qualities of a child. And what are they? Well, the qualities of a child are everything that we don't want to do as an adult. Let's look at innocence. Children are innocent, right? But we want knowledge as adults. We want, to be, we want that knowledge. Paul says that uh, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. There's a difference. 
Vulnerability. Children are vulnerable. We need to be vulnerable before the Lord. What about adults? We don't want to be vulnerable. We want to be secure. Children have an incredible sense of trust. That's why you have to teach them to stay away from strangers, right? Because they have an innate trusting in, in themselves. But we want to be on guard to protect ourselves. You know, we don't want to, we don't want to trust people. You know, you, you, you have your walls up and you let people in little by little in stages, you know, until you can check them out. Children have a meekness. But as adults, we want strength and power. It doesn't matter men, women. We all look for strength and power in different ways. But we're to, put, we're to be meek as children. And this is interesting. In a spiritual sense, babies and children, in a spiritual sense, we need to be born again, Right? And we need to grow and become as a child in our attitudes and our hearts towards the Lord, towards the things of God. As a baby and a child, you start off with an empty slate. Likewise, spiritually, you come to the Lord and you empty yourself of yourself and you start off with an empty slate and you let the Lord fill you with the things of God. He gets to fill you up to his glory because when he does something great in you, he gets glorified by that. So the sermon is titled, While the Master's Away. What are we to do in the interim of our Lord's absence? What are we supposed to do? You know, people think, just join a religious club. Join any religious club and swear allegiance to it. Well, I don't think that's the answer. I mean, we at Calvary Chapel Crossfields, we don't have memberships. We don't say you have to join our club. It, you get what you put into it. You know, I'm not going to be over anybody saying, well, I didn't see the last two services. You need to be here. That you get into it what you put into it. It's like an investment. If you don't put anything into the investment, you don't get anything out of it. If you're not praying, if you're not reading your Bible, if you're not fellowshipping with other Christians, where's your walk going to be? Secularists have long complained that religion is the culprit of much bloodshed over the years. And religion kind of is. can't really disagree with them. Worse than that, religion has caused many to put away their Bibles and falsely, erroneously trust in a religion or a denomination for their salvation. And I've said this before, only to have an awful reality check in judgment. You can't take out, I got a lot of cards, you know, I got different cards and clubs and stuff, and you know, when, when it's time to go, your wallet's not gonna do anything for you. Not your money, not your cards, not your denominational cards, it doesn't do anything for you. But what are we supposed to do? Well, the Lord is away. Pray, pray, and pray some more. We're to check the attitudes of our hearts and we're to be humble. And if I could nail this home, God doesn't want your religion. He doesn't want your good works. He wants a relationship with you. He wants your heart. He wants your heart and he won't settle for anything less. How do I know all this? Because his word tells me so. And I've said before, you don't have to believe me. Look in the scripture for yourself. It's his word. People will pick up all kinds of, of bizarre, new agey, uh, new things to, you know, I'm okay, you're okay, read all these books on self-help, and, and they just can't find the answers. But it's like, this is like a 500-pound book. They don't want to pick this up. But this has all the answers. The same answers that I came to, anybody else could come to. So if you read it, it'll tell you the same thing that it told me. Let's pray. He wants your heart, and he won't 